You are Locked On Bucks, your daily podcast on the Milwaukee Bucks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Backs him down. Giannis into the lane. Giannis spinning. Welcome to Locked on Bucks. <laughs> I'm Frank Madden. Oh, no, wait. I'm Dean Maniat. And the voice that you hear is Eric Name, who is an amazing journalist for ESPN Milwaukee. I'm nobody, but it's fine. Hello, oh, Eric. Don't, don't, don't say that. You're not nobody. Come on. You, if, okay, you were, if you were a nobody, you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't be talking to me right now. You're definitely a somebody. Sense. You're a somebody. Yeah, but you know, I'm a box fan, so it's hopeless for me right now. <laughs> it certainly feels like that way around uh, around Bucks uh, Twitter and Bucks fandom. And I guess kind of why I wanted to have you on, Dean, is um, I think you are are very well versed in in how the Bucks do things, and I think you are very capable at breaking down film and uh, play style and attempting to kind of figure out some of the stuff about uh, the team that the Bucks are about to play. And whether it would have been the Celtics or the Raptors or the Cavs or the Sixers, whoever it would have been, we, the plan was always that this this Thursday podcast without Frank was going to be, I guess recording on Thursday, this will be a Friday podcast. This podcast was going to be you and me kind of getting – into this matchup and attempting to figure out exactly uh, what Bucks fans should be looking for and kind of looking at all of these things. And I guess I'm trying to figure out exactly where to start. I know we kind of shared some notes before this. Um, I guess let's start here. How do you see this Bucks team matching up against the Celtics in comparison to those other three teams I just mentioned? Like it is... Obviously, we know about the talent, and we understand that the Celtics are kind of lacking in that right now because they have a bunch of injuries. But just from a, a style perspective, is this a team that you would want to see? Uh, because obviously, I think a lot of people think of Brad Stevens and think automatically, no, that's not what you want. But is there something there stylistically that should make Bucks fans happy, excited, uh, looking forward to this matchup? Well, getting started with this, uh, since it's Thursday, and I tweeted out, I think last night, that if any teams want, if any team wants, you know, any tips on how to win against the box, I was available at reasonable prices, and I have no messages yet. Wow. So Danny Aids is probably not, you know, on Twitter or something. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I'm gonna go ahead and speak about this matchup and give out all my secrets. Wow. Oh. Wow, you hear that, everyone? You hear that, all the listeners? You're getting this premium product for free. That's awfully generous of you, Dean. Yes, it is. I'm great. <laughs> um, so out of all the teams that are currently the first to fourth seeds, um, the Celtics on paper should be the best matchup for the Bucks. 
even if they had Kyrie and Smart and I don't know how they would be with Hayward, but um, they make the most sense as an opponent for the Bucks. Um, I mean, even if you take take into account, you know, the entire season as a sample, and you know, with Kyrie on the team, they were not great offensively. When Kyrie went down, they plummeted to uh, being 25th in offensive rating in the past 13 games with an offensive rating of, give me a sec, with an offensive rating of uh, 103.3 and a defensive rating of 102.2. In comparison, the box in the same time frame have an offensive rating of 110.9, which is good for sixth in the NBA. So, I mean, and if you watch the Celtics play now, they have a very hard time making points. Um, it's mostly uh, the starting lineup, which features both Tatum and Brown. And they spread, you know, the players around. They essentially make shots. It's mostly a spot-up shooting team. And that's one of the areas that the Bucks are not great defending against. Mm-hmm. Actually, they're not great defending anything, but, you know... <laughs> Sticking by play type, but other than that, uh, the Celtics. If you go to the bench unit, they don't uh, shoot spot up shots. They mostly try to go with post ups, and we know that the box, if they can defend anything, is that you know post ups are one of the play types that they don't allow, and they also defend them very well if they do allow them. So with Greg Monroe being you know the linchpin of the bench unit offensively that's what you expect from the Celtics. I mean, I know that Stevens is going to do a great job, you know, trying to mix it up and have more involvement from, I don't know, like Larkin and Morris, who might, you know, relieve some of the pressure on uh, Monroe, but it's not going to be easy for them to score, even against the Bucs. I, um, I was going to say, I, I think it's kind of interesting to think about about the Celtics team because... Obviously, they they are so well schemed, and there, there's no doubt that when you think of Brad Stevens, you think of great coaching and of getting guys good looks. But the you can only scheme so much in the NBA. Like, like at some point, you do need to have guys that can create those types of types of looks. And obviously, Jason Tatum's had a great season, and Jalen Brown has done a great job as well. But those guys aren't they're good. Like, don't get me wrong, but they're not those upper echelon creators. And I am kind of fascinated to see that as a series goes on, you get to know these teams better and better. You get used to that action. And you you can kind of find a way to, if one thing's working one game, find a way to take that away in the next game. And obviously, Brad Stevens is going to do a great job adjusting in game. But at some point, there's there's only so much you can do. Like at some point, you do have to have guys that can go out and create. And I just think it's interesting with this Celtics team that I don't know, one, what Tatum and Brown look like in the playoffs. We haven't seen that really yet as, or I should say, as major creators. And then two, do, how do they handle those adjustments? How do they handle that pressure night in, night out? Like there's a different intensity uh, to the playoffs. So I think that's interesting. And then I know I had looked it up uh, the other night and their three point rate since 
the since the All Star break, not even just since Kyrie's injury, like since the All Star break, their three point rate has. I don't want to say plummeted, but it's gone down significantly. I think it was fifth or sixth, and after the before the All Star break, and now after the All Star break, it's 18th or 19th. So uh, you mentioned that a little bit there, where that that bench unit doesn't have the spot up shooting, and uh, as a whole, I, I think that helps drag it down a little bit. But the the more you describe that, and the more you think about that, I just feel like I start to think about last year's playoff series, where the Raptors had those two guys in, in Lowry and DeRozan, they ended up not having maybe the best shot profile. They were taking more mid-rangers, and they didn't have those other creators. And no, I, I, part of me just starts to think about that. And, again, this Bucks defense looks awful pretty much every night. But if you do play a style of basketball that – helps them that makes it easier for them to get stops like you think of the games that they play against the Spurs they always look good against the Spurs why do they look good against the Spurs because the Spurs play a type of basketball that allows the Bucks defense to find success and part of me begins to wonder if the if the Celtics will have something similar to that here in the playoffs see you're making great point now because um the thing that Boston is lacking is sort creation and if you don't have, you know, at least one or two shot creators in the lineup, it's hard to generate good looks. I mean, even in last year's series against the Raptors, the change that the Raptors went through after game three worked because you always had, you know, DeRozan on the court who was dangerous on his own. I mean, you had to guard him, you had to pay attention to him so that inevitably led you know to more open shots i mean if you take a look at the team's profiles the raptors still use up uh, pick and roll ball hundred possessions pretty much all the time the celtics don't do that they you know they use handoffs which the bucks don't generally guard well but yeah. they also don't don't allow them at all i mean they usually you know heads or even sometimes splits handoffs if it's someone really dangerous behind coming, you know, behind mm-hmm. the player with the ball. And one other important thing to note is that after Kyrie went down, the Celtics have the third worst turnover rate in the league. They're at uh, 15.4% turnover rate, and that's, you know, amongst the worst teams. I didn't um, know that. Yeah, they're not, you know, taking care of the ball, and that's. It's reasonable to expect so because when you had Kyrie, you had someone who had experience who could, you know, handle the ball and he had a very high usage. And now you're stuck with Rozier, who, you know, is a great player, but he really pushes the pace. He moves very fast and that tends to, you know, increase the likelihood of making turnovers. And then you have essentially a rookie and a sophomore, you know, handling the ball. So they try to, um, you know, relieve some of the pressure by going through Crawford, but that reduces the amount of uh, spot-up shooters that you have in the court. Yeah. Because if you have Crawford handling the ball, then you have Baines inside, and then you have Rozier, who is not a great shooter. I think he was around 34% last time I checked, and Brown and Tatum. So it's a lot of pressure for two guys, and that's just, you know, taking into account the starting lineup. If you, they go two, three people deep in the bench, it gets even worse. So offensively, I don't think that the Bucks, if, if they, you know, they guard them reasonably well, 
like they don't blitz Brazier because there's no point in doing it. And if you know that they, they tone down the over aggressiveness just a bit, I mean they have a chance of you know the Celtics not scoring many points, and then it's just a matter of the Bucks scoring enough points to get the win. And from what we've seen so far in the regular season, I mean, the Bucks can score points. It doesn't matter who the team they're playing against is. They just make shots. Yeah, it, I, I guess that's all. It, as as I've gone through this, I, I've tried to stay away from a ton of optimism, but there has been a, a part of me that, and I mentioned this with Frank and we kind of laughed about it, but I mean, there, there is a certain layer of truth to it that if you play Giannis for 42 minutes, you play Middleton for 40 minutes, you play Bledsoe for 35 minutes. Like you have three guys that when things don't go right, which they often don't in the playoffs and they really don't when you don't, you don't have a great offensive system like the Bucks you have someone on the floor that can create something. Like, and again, it might not always be the best look. It might not always be the most efficient look. It might not be the look that you really want to see your guys take. But with all three of those guys racking up such large minutes, like uh, that just feels like just the, the trait of shot creation, I think it, I mean, it really – goes to the bucks like i don't like i don't even think it's particularly close between uh if you if you stack up the bucks three shot creators and i mean this isn't even factoring in jabari parker who can do that this at times as well but if you stack up Giannis, chris and eric against the celtics tatum brown and horford i think those would probably be the the three main shot creators like i mean that's a lot of shot creation for the Bucks, and maybe not quite as much for the Celtics. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I mean, there's many things that we can talk about in this subject. Uh, I mean, going back to the offense, the Celtic, there are a couple of things that teams can do. It's part of a package that I had, you know, for teams if you wanted to beat the Bucks. Um, if you want to beat the Bucks, the first thing that you do is you always push the ball. When you the opponent opposing team makes a basket, when you get a rebound, when you know you get a steal, you push the ball. And the Bucks are very prone to generating mismatches if they manage to you know stop the possession. So it's an instant advantage for the opposing team because the Bucks have no idea how to play transition defense. <laughs> it's bad. It's, the truth. it's, it's they, terrible. I've never seen anything like it. It's like um, the Bucks generally for the past three years have tried four years actually have tried to stop transition possessions from happening and that's by you know not having people behind the three-point line go after offensive rebounds mm-hmm. but i think that just you know worsened the problem that they have that, that i don't think they've ever been taught how to transition defense the, i was gonna um, say the, the their fundamentals in transition are just really bad and i i, I don't think that's a terrible theory just the idea that since they never had anyone crash on the glass, there was always three or four guys back, so they just didn't really learn how to how to actually you know kind of pass assignments off and figure out which which threats matter and stuff like that. But yeah, fundamentally, they're bad. It's transition. what they do. I mean, they've been the the team that allows the fewest transition possessions in I think three straight years now. Yep. 
and it's quite a wide margin from the second world, uh, best team at that. But, you know, if you balance it out with the amount of points they give up, when they do allow transition positions, they're, you know, uh, I think bottom third in the league. Yep. But, I mean, if you have a team that's prepared to push the pace, like the Sixers did, I mean, I went back today and I watched, like, I don't know, the first six minutes of the game. And it's, Brett Brown knew what he was doing. I mean, as soon as they got the ball, someone was running to the corner or to the wing and waiting for a shot. And the Bucks had no idea how to stop that. And that's how they got the early advantage. It was pretty strategy. I think anyone can do it if if you've got like two series on the team. You just run them to the other side, you have a good passer, and that's it, that's a basket for you. Or a very good look. So, uh, but the Celtics are not one of the teams that run a lot. They are ranked uh, 21st in, uh, hmm. uh, you know, how fast they move the ball up after a made shot. It takes them like 18 seconds per position. Um, the Bucks, for comparison, are like 14th. And they're actually a quite slow team after made baskets. Uh, the Celtics also take... Um, they are 21st also in uh, seconds of possession after defensive rebounds, while the box are uh, ranked third. Because usually, if you, they get the rebound, you know, Giannis is really push open, so I'm pushing the ball right straight to the defense. Yep. And uh, I think they're also like 20th after turnovers. So that's another area where the box are weak, but the Celtics don't usually take advantage of it. And I think it makes sense because apart from Razier, who will we'll push the pace now. The other guys aren't quite fit to do it. Yep. I mean, uh, I was watching the the game against the Wizards that the Celtics had, and I mean, the only person who was running the quarter was Brown, and, you know, it led to some good looks, but it's not something that you expect a team, you know, to use consistently in the playoffs, especially there where, you know, teams are supposed to be much more attentive to transition possessions. So there's that. And I mean, there are more things that uh, the Celtics don't usually use cuts, which is the Bucks' biggest weakness. I mean, if you, even if you take into account that everyone on the team, including Giannis and Chris and Eric and, you know, Jabari sometimes, all the time, <laughs> letting a guy cut behind them. I mean, the Celtics don't have good cutters. The best one is probably Brown and then Tatum, but they're usually uh, on the weak side and on the wings, so they don't have many opportunities to do that. It's an alignment issue that they have. So that's also a thing that the box have going their way. So if you, Sty- you, know, you take it... A- I was going to say, stylistically, what is it that the Celtics do best? Like if you're, if you're breaking it down play type and trying to figure out what that... Where are they most effective? They know how to hunt mismatches if they have someone that they know, like Brown or Tatum or, you know, in the post, someone can take advantage of, they're going to make a basket out of it. Okay. They, they understand the, you know, the whole concept of mismatching and they're, they have great spacing. So, you know, if you make a slight mistake, if you overhelp somewhere, the ball is going to find someone open. It's just the problem that they don't have the talent that they need score as much there's a threshold that teams can reach by scheming correctly and you can see that brilliantly by the uh the brooklyn nets 
Yeah. I mean, schematically, they're the best team in the NBA. Atkinson is an incredible coach that he has them playing the correct way. But it's the lack of talent on the team that, you know, stopped them from being better. They had a few good games, like the one against the box, where, you know, they made shots. Mm-hmm. But that's an aberration. It's not something that happens all the time. But it's the correct way to play. It's pretty much what the Celtics do. And, I mean, the danger against this team is that they're very good defensively. Um, I mean, uh, I was say, let's get let's get into. I think most mostly what we did there was look at the Celtics' offense. Um, I think let's try to change gears here. And I was thinking about this earlier today: is if if you're the number one offense, I probably have a pretty good idea of what you're doing. Like, I, I probably know that. You're hitting a bunch of threes. I probably know that you're getting a bunch of looks at the rim. Uh, I probably know that there's some level of of efficient basketball teaching going on by whoever that coach is. I don't feel like we always know that same thing about a number one defense because I, I think it can come in a variety of shapes. Like sometimes you have a, a really great rim protector. Like you look at Utah, they're schemed very well uh, as both of us are big Quinn Snyder fans, but they have a guy like Rudy Gobert in the middle and the Celtics uh, don't have a guy like that. Al Horford's a good rim protector, but he's not the same guy as Rudy Gobert. So defensively, how did, how did this team become the number one defense in the league this year? Well, the Celtics have some things that they do very well. And one of them is something that, you know, Jake Goldstein, our friend, um, Mentioned earlier in the season that, you know, we all know that there's this concept that three-point percentage uh, on defense is pretty much luck-based. Mm-hmm. But there are some teams which have been consistently in the top five of uh, three-point percentage allowed, and the Celtics is one of those teams, including uh, along with, this, I think, the Spurs is the other team. Yep. And it, uh, it has to do with the positioning of the players when they're going to close out and the fact that they force a higher percentage of uh, three-point shots later in the clock compared to earlier and you know that's that doesn't show when you measure the stats combined so you know all three-point attempts will appear to be you know at 32 percent allowed but the celtics allow the highest percentage of shots three-point shots late and very late in the clock and that's that means that they force the, the offense you know to Expend all the clock time. Just and wait then a get second. A Are you telling me they correctly apply the concept behind the Bucks defense? Like the idea that you want to make a team take as long as possible to take a shot and to get as deep in the clock. Like, are you telling me that they actually execute that? Is that a thing yeah. teams can do? That's huh, weird. It's it's a very hard thing to do, and that's why there are only two teams which have you know a consistent three point percentage allowed because it involves you know actually making the opposing offense devolve and not evolve over time or just, you know, stay solid. Um, we all know that later in the clock, shot value drops because, you know, you have more pressure and the looks are probably not going to be as good. But some teams use that, the, you know, the progression of time to their advantage. You know, they run a play, which takes some time to develop. And when they get to the end of the shot clock, they have the look that they wanted. And that's that balances out, you know, the possessions that the the team doesn't actually run anything, 
they move the ball but they can't find anything and so they make a shot the Celtics do that consistently they understand that you know if you deny some options and they usually do that by switching and they will switch a large number of pick and roll they won't switch the one and five if it's Rozier and Baines but they might switch you know um, the one and three the one and four the two and three the two and four the two and five okay so they try to extend the possession and make you look for other options, but without compromising the defense. I mean, they're going to give up something. Their mid-range defense is not great, but they and they also don't have great rim protection, and that's one of the things that we're going to talk about later. But they do guard the three-point line, and they know that you know if they're going to give up something, it's not going to be three three-point shots that's easy. Which, you know, against the box is not important because the box don't like shooting shots anyway. <laughs> I, I was, that's what, something I was going to ask. So, again, uh, I think people will probably listen to, uh, I don't even know how many minutes we are in here, 20 minutes or so. They'll probably listen to that and say, oh, these guys are just so positive and saying that everything's going to work out. And I, I'm curious, as I listen to that again, like that seems like – something that maybe might not have the greatest effect on the Bucks, like shutting the other team down from three. I mean, the Bucks tend not to take advantage of people from three. So how do they, how do the Celtics try to handle some of the, the actions that the Bucks like to run? Like you, you think about some of the things that, that are really popular for this Bucks team. And I, I guess I should say really prevalent. Like they use them a lot. I, I think you, you think a lot of Giannis on uh, the left block. That That's one that's almost always there. Uh, you think of Middleton pick and roll with Henson, sometimes high on the floor, sometimes on the right wing, um, sometimes just kind of in the middle of the floor, a little bit lower. Uh, and then I think a, a little bit about Bledsoe uh, and kind of the work he does. Um, how do they try to... I guess, uh, how do you foresee the Celtics defending those actions? And is there anything that the Celtics do uh, when defending those actions that the Bucks might be able to take advantage of? Well, there's, uh, I mean, about Giannis, I don't think that the Celtics have much of a chance to, you know, slow him down that much. I mean, there's this um, idea that all of Horford is good defending Giannis, and he was actually pretty effective in the second game at the Mecca. Um, I mean, pretty effective in some sense, but the Celtics don't really overload against Giannis. They might, if he's in the block, and the Bucks actually don't post up Giannis a lot against the Celtics after the first two games, because they will allow Al Hofo to defend him straight up, or whoever is guarding him. But, I mean, for the season, um, Giannis has been very efficient against the Celtics. I mean, even even against Holford, he, he shot like, uh, let's see, 30, 13 out of 24 should go to attempts, which is like uh, 60-something percent, I think. Yep. Um, actually, it's 54.2 percent. He shot the same amount of shots that he would have shot against any other player. So, you know, the detrimental factor is 100. Um, and he drew, like, eight shooting fouls out of it. So, um, Holford is not the ideal way to stop Giannis. And 
I think we've seen throughout the season how teams can stop Giannis and make it hard for him if his jumper is not working. And that's why having, you know, a very athletic and, you know, strong wing covered behind by a very good rim protector and the Celtics don't have that. They don't have I don't even know if they don't really have either of those, right? Like yeah, no, uh, Jalen Brown's probably too small. Jason Tatum isn't a good enough defender. Um I'm trying to think through the rest of kind of the Celtics wings. Marcus Smart is kind of the same way. Uh in that he's was a little bit too small. Semi Ojale um was I mean, kind of a guy that has a little bit more size, but even he's on the small end. So it feels like one that they don't have the wing for Giannis. And I guess we can kind of break these down. Like what, what, uh, individually, like what do the Celtics do against Giannis? But, uh, and then on the backside, like Horford's fine, but he's probably better as like a, a team defender, a guy that's able to move around, switch across a couple different assignments. Then, then he really is a rim protector. Like I, I, as you kind of talk through that and you you think about it a little bit, I, I don't even know. Is Aaron like Aaron Baines is probably strong enough for Giannis, but he's not quick enough for Giannis. Like there's just not. I don't see a great matchup for the Celtics team. And, and you mentioned the efficiency. So uh, Giannis specifically, I know you had a little bit, maybe a little bit more of the matchup data. What, what did you think about uh, Giannis and kind of what he will look like against the Celtics team? Well, judging from how, what he's done in the four matchups they have this year and from the fact that it's the playoffs and we've seen Giannis last year with, the, I think it was a much harder opponent defensively because, you know, uh, they had PJ Tucker and Ibaka, which, we you know, was a great combo to defend him because you know PJ Tucker is a very strong uh, defender. Yep. Ibaka is very good against, uh, around the glass as a you know backside defender, and he was still very efficient. And against the Celtics this year, I mean, there's not a single person who's guarded him well. Even Semi Ojalala um, had like I think he shot seven out of ten, ten against him. Mm-hmm. And if you if you actually watch the games, I mean, when Giannis was attacking and I'm talking about the very aggressive Giannis that we saw, you know, in the playoffs last year in games one to three and uh, I think five and six. I mean, he's very hard to stop because he's just so much quicker than usual. He's very, very good at uh, taking advantage of, you know, all the angles that that can get him to the rim. And Crawford is not fast enough to stop that. I mean, I'm trying to like you and I have talked about this a number of times, either on the internet or I think in person a couple times. But you can always there. There's that move from Giannis where he backpedals just slightly in the middle of the floor, and the big stays a little bit too low, and then he gets that kind of track where he can start to attack. And you know, every time it's going to be attack hard to the left plant on the left, Euro to the right, and then a finger roll past him. And, I mean, he makes big guys look silly with that all the time. And, like, he hits Horford with that move. For as much as we talk about how quick Horford is and how skilled he is, like, he, he's done that to Horford. Yeah, it's a bad defense against him now. I mean, it worked uh, at the beginning of the season. It was something new, uh, you know, for him. And he didn't quite have it down. But now if you give him some space and you drop back, he just he's just gonna use that space to generate momentum. 
Yep. And then it's very hard to, you know, you have to guess what he's going to do. And he's very good at, you know, you're stepping the right and left and finishing with his left. And the angles are so, impossible. Like, he's so long. Yeah. Like, uh, you, even if you do guess right, there's still times where he does score on you. Yeah, yeah, it's very hard. And, I mean, he I think he got hover with a spin move in the last game. Yeah. Which was a yeah, very easy move to do for him. But, anyway, I think that, you know, Giannis is going to be fine as long he, as he wants to be fine. I think it's more of a mental thing for him. The, the Celtics don't match up well physically against him. And I think the problem with the Bucks is going to be when Giannis is not scoring, what the other guys are going to do. Um, I think that Bledsoe is going to have a great chance if he continues to play as well as he's played in the you know, past month or so. He could cause some issues on the defense. I mean, defensively, the Celtics have one more problem now. Uh, and it's been, you know, exaggerated since Sass Mart went down and Tice. Um, the second unit is not good defensively. They, since they don't have, you know, length and they can't really switch all that much with Larkin and, you know, Morris, the distance between, you know, the height of players is too, too, too large. Mm. So they try to help more. And, uh, I mean, the game against the Wizards, they were getting killed by drives and kicks to the corner. Something that, you know, as Giannis likes to do, or even Bledsoe can do. Yeah. I mean, they will help in the lane if it's the second unit, because if you've got Monroe in there, you have no rim protection. So, you know, it's a great difference between the starting lineup and the, the second unit for the Celtics. And in the playoffs, I know they're going to try probably to play, you know, big minutes for the starting guys. But it's not really, you know, a great option for them to find, you know, this is how we're going to stop Giannis. It's going to have to be something schematic. And, I mean, let's knock it ourselves. The, the key to stopping the box is stopping Giannis from getting into rhythm. Because if he does, then the entire team gets into rhythm. Yep. Because you know, he's going to try to find guys, you know, you know, lift the spirits. He's going to give the team energy. But if you stop Giannis early, we've seen that the team, you know, if they hit dry pads, they don't usually recover from it. They're going to digress, you know, to devolve to taking isolation shots and stuff yeah. like that. So that's what the Celtics should do. But it all starts with, you know, stopping Giannis and making him feel uncom- uncomfortable. I mean, if I were the Celtics, I would have um, probably Brown on him because he's a bit stronger than Tatum and just have him, you know, chase him around the floor all the time. Try to deny him the ball and then, you know, make him work for it. I, I think what I'm as I'm kind of thinking through this, I I think back to that Raptors series, and I just remember how how active Giannis was in Game One, and how easy it was for him to catch an outlet, grab a rebound, whatever it may be, and then really just build up a, a full court of steam, and the Raptors were were just helpless and. Uh, the the times where the Bucks really started to struggle in some games was as soon as the Raptors started to put a guy at half court that wasn't letting Giannis catch outlets on the run and instead just even if it was turning him once like just making him slow down his momentum so that in transition you could get going and I, I just I, I think uh, obviously every minute is important and 
you, you never want anyone to get loose, but I just think keeping Giannis in check in the first quarter is just monumental for the Celtics team. I don't know if there there should be a, a higher priority than executing defensively against Giannis in the first quarter because if you can do that, then like you said, the Bucks start to feed into kind of their their self I mean, it's a self fulfilling prophecy. All the things that you hear about ISOs, your turn, my turn, his turn, kind of scenarios like all of those things start to play out as soon as Giannis doesn't have a rhythm in the first quarter. And uh, obviously, this is duh, Eric. Yeah, make it hard on Giannis, but I do think it is especially important and can be especially significant if you get it done in the first five minutes or so of a game like you get this Bucks team to come out slow then maybe you can get another three minutes or or four minutes or I guess in the playoffs another five minutes where Giannis is going to take his until the time he takes his first break and if you can get him to his first break where he doesn't have a rhythm then that gets it just gets harder and harder for him so I think you bring up a good point the rhythm for Giannis is going to be huge to start this game yeah and I mean even if if they do stop him at first it's such a weird team I mean the Celtics don't have the firepower to you know mount an incredible run offensively I mean they're not a team that's going to score I don't know, 15, 15 straight points without giving something back because it's very hard for them to score points yeah. consistently. So, I mean, I would be very surprised if any of the games were not close. Just because I mean, the Celtics literally can't run away is what you're saying? Like their yeah, offense yeah, isn't I mean, good enough? I don't think that they can, you know, gain enough of an advantage offensively that, you know, they can get away with a big win against the box. At least that's what I hope that would happen. So it means now that I've said it, something terrible is going to happen. They're going to lose by like 70 points in the first game. But it, realistically, it shouldn't happen. So, okay, so Giannis, we talked about. Bledsoe, we touched on a little bit there, where Bledsoe may be able to take advantage of a guy like Rogier. Um, he may be able to take advantage of some of the the Celtics' less mobile bigs in Baines and in Monroe. Um, let's go to the third guy there for the Bucks, Middleton. Is there really a spot where he's going to to find a good rhythm against the Celtics team? It just feels like if those other two things are true, then that must mean they have a, a a better way to guard Chris Middleton or am I off base there well Middleton has been uh great against Brown and Smart so when he was uh faced against twos uh shooting guards let's say but he was quite ineffective against Tatum which makes sense because Tatum is a long guy yep. um he can contest his shots better and I mean I would think that Chris is not going to be handling the ball so much in the playoffs, especially this matchup, because it would be you know moving the ball away from the pressure points that the Bucks do have to make the Celtics defense uncomfortable. I mean, um, I would probably think that Chris would be used a bit more as a spacer and someone who is going to be giving giving you baskets when you know it's. 
um, a bit later in the quarter, and you need, you know, just to get some points up there, where he's going to get, you know, a high pick and roll. And even though the Celtics don't usually fall for pick and rolls high against non pull up uh, three shooting guys, and Chris unfortunately has not been a three, you know, pull up mm-hmm. three shooting guy this year. Um, so they might drop way back and have, you know, uh, the center is going to be, and it's not going to bother the screen. He's just going to, you know, position himself to stop the penetration up to the mid-range point. But um, I think, you know, he's going to be, he's not, I don't think he's going to struggle as much as he did last year offensively. Um, I think he's even, he's picking his spots better this year. And I think that this game is going to dictate itself. I mean, we'll see who gets going, who's going to be, you know, how the Celtics respond to its player. I think they're going to prioritize, you know, trying to see how Giannis does and Bledsoe, and then they're going to see if, you know, the Celtics Celtics come up to something that, you know, stops the accents between them. Oh, and by the way, the Bucks should really not try to do too much pick and roll between Bledsoe and Giannis because Stevens is one of the first coaches in the season who um, came up with, you know, the, the ideal defense for that. We had, you know, two wings guarding Giannis and Bledsoe. Yep. So, you know, the pick and roll was switched immediately and... It just could, did nothing. It, it goes Yeah, nowhere. maybe get Giannis against, you know, I don't know, Tatum, but it's not something that the Bucks know how to take advantage of. Uh, but, you know, Chris, I think he's going to be fine, but it's it's going to be interesting to see how the Bucks decide to use him. If they're going to, you know, use him offensively as a main weapon or if they're going to, you know ask him to be a bit more auxiliary and you know help if the team needs him that that'll be interesting because i feel like that's something that that this team largely struggles with that they they sometimes don't prioritize the right guys and especially when Giannis comes off the floor which i guess in this series is a nice thing that once you get to the playoffs Giannis probably only comes off for six or seven minutes um it always feels like as soon as Giannis leaves, then the security blanket is is Middleton, and then you get some of those shots that that people don't enjoy. Uh, the the tough shot express gets on the on the rails and gets moving. So um, I think that'll be interesting to watch to see if they can kind of prioritize uh, the shots that they want taken, the action that they want people to make, and. Uh, if they can make sure that it, you know, it's Giannis first and then it's probably Bledsoe who has the next best matchup and then Middleton uh, kind of fitting in there where uh, they need some of those other things. So I, I think that'll be interesting to watch. Um, going through uh, some other things, I think one thing that one thing that I keep hearing, and this is something that I, I think drives a lot of Bucks fans crazy, is they're, they're big men, right? The John Henson isn't good enough, that John Henson gets bullied too much, uh, that Thon Maker is unplayable, uh, that Tyler Zeller is nice but just hasn't really played more than 15 to 20 minutes a game. I, I just feel like there's always this concern that the other team's bigs are going to take advantage, and this Celtics team is someone that does end up playing a bunch of bigs like Baines does play Monroe does play uh Horford plays and I mean obviously like Daniel Tice had played before that like they aren't afraid to use bigs is that something you foresee being a problem and before you say anything I understand that 
bigs tend to take inefficient shots and bigs uh, tend to be a spot you want to go to. But we also know that the Bucks like to double the post and uh, sometimes send extra help to those inefficient shots that are about to be taken. So uh, how do you kind of see any of that playing out with the post and the bigs and uh, whether or not the Bucks will be taking advantage of there? I think that uh, for the starting lineup, I mean, the Celtics don't usually use Baines much. I mean, he started popping for the three-point line recently. He made like three, <laughs> two, three-point shots in one game. Then he missed every other shot horribly. But um, uh, I mean, he's not much of a danger. He is a good offensive rebounder. He knows how to box out. He knows how to get into position. He's a good screen setter, um, and pretty much that's it. I don't think that, you know, Hansen is going to be a problem for if you match him up against Baines. I mean, it's not going to be that much of an issue if you want to have a big out there. I think that Zeller is going to be better against Baines. I mean, if I were Prunty, I would start Zeller simply because I think it fits the profile of uh, Baines better than Hansen. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think I know that it's not reasonable to expect, you know, a change in the starting lineup. Um, but uh, I, the only thing I would do would be not to play Thon. And it, I know it sounds bad for someone who you know started last year's playoffs, and he had he had a positive impact in well, quite a few games. I mean, it was kind of his it, last playoffs were his coming out party, right? Like that was when he kind of exploded onto the scene, and everyone's like, "Oh my gosh, Thon Maker is an asset this summer. He is someone that you want to prioritize for the future." Yeah, he was last year. Now he's. Just very bad player. Um, I mean, you. I don't think you can get away with playing Thon, and it's pretty much you know. I mean, the rotation is gonna be have to have to be shortened. I wouldn't leave Zeller out of it because he has a great feel for the game. Um, and he wrote this article in his been Milwaukee about how he finds the right spots offensively, and that's you know that's another way to take advantage of the offense that you can run that you know it's not complicated but when you have enough points that you know generate some kind of threat to the defense defenses tend to bend and you know make it easier for other guys to score i mean if you have to want worry about seller on the back side the drive that's you know whoever's going to make it, it's going to be a little bit you know less tightly guarded so he offers much to the offense and i think that you know he's a great rebounder relative, you know, to being a bench guy. Uh, I mean, those are things that Thon doesn't give you. I mean, if you had to play Thon because you hope that, you know, I don't know, he would switch with someone or he would chase a guard around, I mean, uh, I think that's the time that you just go small and you play correctly as a small ball lineup because, I mean, we saw a small ball lineup in the third game against the Celtics. Yep. Where the box played and they lost, it was pretty much, I think... Uh, that was like the 60. comeback lineup, right? Like that they were trying to come back in the fourth quarter? Yeah, it was, uh, I think, let me see. I think it was Bledsoe and Brogdon, um, Middleton, uh, Snell and Giannis yep. or something. And they were just, you know, ridiculously trying to, I don't know, cover the pick and roll. Traditionally, they were like, I don't know, I'll remember the drop or whatever. Oh, yeah. And Smart was <laughs> I totally throwing lobs. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, it was ridiculous to watch it. But I mean, if you just go small against lineups that 
you know, if the Celtics and they will go small at some point. I mean, they will they will play Horford in the second half of games. You know, as a center, that's when he goes small. Uh, so I don't think you can get away with playing Fawn. Even you know, it sounds bad. I know I said it before, but he just doesn't. I don't think he can offer you much in this playoff series. But other than that, I mean, uh, if Monroe gets the ball of the post. I think it's not a bad idea to double him at some point. I mean, he's not very eager to pass the ball. We've known that for years, even though he's a great passer. And since the Celtics don't really like to cut into the lane, Monroe has to kick the ball back out. So, I mean, it's not such a high-value shot that you're going to give up. That's kind of interesting, just because... uh... I mean, I guess it kind of fits in with Greg Monroe's style that uh, he often does not kick the ball out once it goes in, but just the fact that that would kind of be a way to take advantage of the Bucks, right? Like, they do love to double in the post, and a lot of the times that's what can kind of start the motion that makes things difficult uh, for the deep, for the Bucks' defense. And I didn't, I didn't even really kind of think about that, that the, the Celtics don't like to cut, and Greg Monroe doesn't often like to pass to cutters anyways. Yeah, I mean, uh, and he usually plays with a second lineup. I mean, like I said, it's going to be fewer guys in the playoffs, but I mean, he's not going to be... The Celtics don't have enough guys that can make shots now. I mean, if Tatum is not on the floor, they have, I think, like, uh, just Hawford, who is uh, an above 40% three-point shooter now, Mm -hmm. and everyone else is around 35%. I mean, if, if you have Larkin on, he's the 36.3 uh, point shooter. Um, Brown is a, a, a bit below 40. But I mean, it's not going to be like, okay, if you double him, oh, someone's going to get an open three and make it. You, I mean, it's something, it's an option that you do have because Monroe is great in the post. Yep. I mean, he can take advantage of anyone, regardless of who, of who he is. So if, you know, if he, if he gets in and he scores like two baskets that are very easy for him and the Celtics go to him continuously, you might think of doubling him because it's not going to be as catastrophic as, you know, doubling DeAndre Jordan, who is a disgusting player in the post. <laughs> um, okay, I'm trying to think through through other stuff I wanted to talk about or think about with the Celtics team. Um, I, I guess... I guess let's talk a little bit about the Stevens factor. Um, obviously, that that was kind of uh, this. That's a part of every conversation. I guess every minute of this conversation we've had thus far, right? Like uh, Brad Stevens factors into that. But is there a way that uh, is there some tangible way that you can kind of measure just how impactful he'll be? Is there a particular area where he can he can really take advantage of the Bucks? Um, I think obviously most people, I shouldn't say most people, all people would say Brad Stevens is a better coach than Joe Prunty. Um, but is there a way in a playoff series that he can really kind of uh, take advantage of the Bucks and get his his team some sort of some sort of edge? Well, um, I mean, first of all, Stevens is a, a great coach. He's a great coach defensively. He's a great coach on getting his guys to perform above expectations. He's a great coach when it comes to fundamentals of basketball. 
he's not a great coach in X's and O's. I mean, that's generally known throughout the NBA that Stevens is not a wizard that's going to, you know, draw great plays or he's going to, you know, create something that's going to take advantage of something on the defense in a brilliant way. He just understands the fundamentals. He's like, he can't, it's like he came out of the Spurs school, although he didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he just, you know, understands how basketball is played in the right way. But I mean... Even so, right now, Stevens is, you know, the advantage that he has over Prentice is that, you know, we're talking about the series that, you know, we don't know which team is going to win and the Celtics are favored. Some people think that the Celtics might sweep the series. I mean, I've seen a lot on Twitter being, you know, mentioned and people think that the Celtics are still going to win. And that's just because of Stevens, because if, you know, if you took the top eight players of each team right now, with Irving and Smart and everyone else else out. I mean, if you took those eight guys from the box and the eight guys from the Celtics and you had a pickup game between them, I think that, you know, the box players would just, you know, walk away disgusted and say, What the hell is this? It's not a game. Yeah. yeah. I mean the disparity between talent is too great. So the fact that we're, we're talking about the series is, you know, because Stevens is a mitigating factor that, you know, reduces the box advantage. But I mean, Stevens can do so much to help his team. Uh, the way that the Celtics play, I mean, and recently after the Kyrie injury, they've, I mean, they're trying to play well, they're trying to play the correct way, but I mean, they're still, if you believe it, uh, the Celtics in the past 13 games since uh, Irving stopped playing, have been shooting more mid-range shots at the box as a, <laughs> on frequency, and that's incredible because I mean the box have been the worst team in the league throughout the season. Wow! And somehow the Celtics have you know surpassed that. But I mean, uh, there's so much that he can do. It's what the other team is going to give him. I mean, if Joe Prunty, um acts reasonably, you know, within the frame of basketball knowledge and the team doesn't do something exceedingly stupid, there's not much that Stevens can do to force, you know, an outcome out of the series. It's how the Bucks react to what Stevens does. And I mean, the Bucks have the advantage in talent, which is important, but they also have the advantage in, you know, that the Celtics right now are not a team that's playing well as a team offensively. And I mean, it's I don't know. The matchup to me looks on, on paper it looks great for the Bucks because the Celtics have something that the Bucks um, don't seem to mind so much. They have a great defense, but the Bucks have been scoring great against good defenses, and they have they don't have the one thing that the Bucks really you know might destroy them, and that's an offense that you know can generate points. Damn, I think you've you've. Uh... I said Celtics in six uh, the other night. I, man, I think at the end of this 50 whatever minute conversation, uh, you want, you, you've made me want to, you, I think I want to pick the Bucks. No, don't take the Bucks. So where no, would no, you, no. where would you go? <laughs> uh, what, just, just, I, to, I'm I, not going to say anything. I'm going to say one thing though. I mean, the outcome of this series 
is going to be beneficial to the Bucks anyway. If the Bucks lose this series, it's not going to be because the other team was better. It's going to be because the Bucks were so bad schematically that they couldn't be be the team that had you know a third of the talent that the Bucks currently have. Yeah. So it's going to show you know we're going to see exactly how much the difference is between what the Bucks could do and what they're actually doing. I mean, if you haven't engaged Giannis and engaged Giannis, that was you know October Giannis who was <laughs> incredibly I don't know, a force of nature. And you still lose the Celtics, which are you know undermanned, and they don't really you you match up really well against them. Yeah. Then you know that you know this team is super flawed. <laughs> you didn't. I mean, I, I I saw that on Twitter. You know, the Bucks should you know face the, the Sixers because they're going to get embarrassed, and then that's going to force changes. But I think that you know the Sixers are a great coach team. They have great talent they have the right pieces around the talent that they have so if you look if you lost the sixers and by the way i mean honestly i think people should really you know tone down the whole sixers thing because i mean i know they've been playing great they've been very very lucky on three-point shots so far and that might work against them in the playoffs against the heat because i mean there might be some regression coming and the more the games are played and the Sixers shoot above expectations from three, the more likely it becomes, you know, it's going to happen in the playoffs. But I mean, if you played against the Sixers and you lost the series, even if you got swept, that would mean nothing substantial to the team. You would not extract anything because the Sixers are essentially better than you in pretty much everything, apart from maybe, you know... Coach, talent, from, schemes, yeah. Yeah, I mean... The first, maybe Giannis might be, at this point, you know, a bit better than Embiid yeah. if he were to come back. But, I mean, after that, you have the, the, the Sixers are, you know, better, a much better roster than the Bucks, And we're talking about, you know, fit between them. Yep. So, I mean, you could not extract anything from that. From, from the Celtics, who are, you know, the least talented, talented team in the playoffs, you know, across both uh, conferences... And they just have a coach that's, you know, he's a great coach. He can get his players to play hard. He's like Scott Skiles, but, you know, a bit better than him. Actually, mm-hmm. a lot better than him. But, I mean, uh, if you if you lose to this team, it means that there's something very, very wrong with everything that you're doing. And, I mean, that's going to be true either, even if the Bucks win. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just, you know, it's a win-win uh, situation because... If you lose the series, well, he knew that the Bucks could lose the series. I mean, we all know that the Bucks might blow this series. Absolutely. I, but I do think I think that it's the Bucks series to lose. It's not the Celtics. Okay, I think that's a good place to leave us. Um, any any other parting thoughts? I think you just got in the one the one thought that you wanted to get. In. Anything else you got? No, I'm good. I need to sleep now. I need to do the exact same thing. So. Let's see. Dean can be found at all the bucks. Um, he can be found um, in my mentions from time to time. He can be found uh, messaging me at all hours of the day because we are in two very different time zones. Um, thanks, Dean. Thanks for coming by. Thanks, and uh, hopefully um, we're going to be all happy fans on Monday. We're not going to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> 
thanks, mate. <laughs> no problem. Uh, that was Dean Maniad. Find him at at all the Bucks. Frank will be back on Sunday to break down the game and kind of let you know what all happened there. A big thanks to Dean for joining me. For Frank, for Dean, for myself, Eric, this has been Lockdown Bucks. We will talk to you after game one.